Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Arete. I'm here with Jason. Jason, how are you doing today? I'm great. Happy Friday, Steve. Happy Friday to you too. You uh you are about to make a big life move, are you not? I am. 48 hours from pulling chocks and heading for Buena Vista, Colorado. One of my favorite places in the world. I love that place. It's a spirit place for me. Um, yeah. I have to come and visit you, and we'll have to do some of these recordings face-to-face instead of um, across the 30 miles of distance and <laughs> the instant of the internet or the 100 million years of the internet, whichever it is. It's both time-compressed <laughs> and extended. Yes. Oh, man, that's good. You know, you introduced us to Buena Vista five years ago. Yeah. Almost six now, I guess, huh? Yeah, I guess so. Yep. Another lifetime ago, it feels like for me. Actually, literally a different lifetime ago. But, well, let's jump in um, to our episode. This this week, we're going to talk about identity for sure, and hopefully groundedness, though I'm not entirely sure that we'll make it all the way through there. I have a, ten- I have a feeling that we may end up um, pausing at identity and moving into groundedness, but we'll see. Just, just putting it out there, could be that this is a two, this is a double episode, but that's our concept, um, is to come through with the idea of identity and then how that is grounded in some form of basement reality, if you will, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, these are, as we've mentioned before, if you're jumping in and this is the first time you've listened to this podcast, uh, we do not fuck around. We go deep and we go there quick and we stay there for extended periods of time. If it's not your cup of tea, what I ask you to do is just give us, you know, 20, 30 minutes. And my guess is we'll bring this back around to running in some way that's pretty deep and pretty meaningful to you. Um, and if we don't, then you've got a thousand other podcasts that you can listen to and we wish you well and we wish you on your way. But Jason and I, we are, we're really not uncomfortable diving into the deep end. So the model that we've been getting to use so far in these episodes is to sort of review the last episode for a little bit and kind of any new reflections and thoughts that we've had about it and then move into the main topic. So Jason, I know you've had a couple of thoughts that you wanted to share a little bit with in terms of the map is not the territory. So I'll let you take it from here and we'll, and then we'll, we'll move on um, from there into different, wherever, wherever things take us. Yeah. That sounds great. So, you know, we, we had this nice segue with the map is not the territory into this conversation about identity. And we talked a little bit about identity being a map in of itself. And I think it's a little bit more than that, but because of, you know, what we were talking about, I spent a lot of time thinking about the map of career and, um, I got, you know, caught up for a long time in, and we'll get into depth on this more today as we talk about identity. But for a long time, I got caught up in thinking that like what I do for work with my time as an occupation, um, is really important. And I think it is important for us, but I ascribed a lot of meaning to it that mistook the map for the territory, right? And and we'll talk a lot today about why we can get, kind of like get into trouble if we if we don't understand identity or we, we give too much to it in our brain space. Um, so I want to just like earmark that for now. There was another thing that that you brought up where we were kind of talking about how humans like to be predictive. And what I, 
what I really started thinking about, and this was really, this was in the context of, we're talking about running, talking about the map as the territory and running and how we kind of bring this back in, into the context for athletes. And one of those things is like data, gigometers, um, trying to predict something like a marathon time or, you know, this sort of thing. And, and uh, we, you know, more specifically, I was thinking about how we have a tendency as humans to try to control and manipulate the variables in our environment in order to achieve certain outcomes, right? And we, so we think that, um, for example, you know, I can, I can like construct a training plan. It's going to have these certain physiological adaptations and I have these checkpoints and these fitness races and all of this is going to lead to a certain outcome, right? Like I'm the master of puppets here. And it, you know, this idea that we can control the variables in our environment to achieve certain outcomes in a very uncertain world um, is um, true to some extent under certain conditions, like a really low variable set, like if you just have a couple variables you're working with, or when one only considers a limited influence on outcomes, as in like, I'm only trying to achieve a an outcome based on like manipulation of a certain variables within this multivariate equation, <clears throat> which, you know, if you follow science in and of itself is a little bit of a, of a tricky thing to do. And so, um, you know, I gave, I, so some examples of this are like, we're trying to manipulate or control general or specific physiological outcomes through the structure of workouts or training plans, like I mentioned a minute ago. Um, and it's important to understand that, that that deals with a really narrow set of variables that have to do with, say, a race outcome. Um, and we're looking at only limited control even over those kinds of outcomes. So we're going at, let's say, you know, you're focusing on like becoming faster through a particular training block, uh, you're not really like you have a little bit, we're sort of like marginally influencing those outcomes. We're not really getting to like the root of everything that needs to happen in order to become a faster human. Right. We're kind of like uh, it's more like scattershot or something, but where we, where I think we get into trouble with problematic thinking around outcomes and control is when we think that we can predict and control these multivariate outcomes like races, right? Like we, we have, we have a tendency <clears throat> in that over predictive context um, to think that we can control more than we really can. And, and when we think that we have a lot of control, I think we set ourselves up for failure around expectations. And um, so I also think that we just overinvest our energy in, in focusing on these things that we can't control. And um, we'd really do better to, to like see a situation where <clears throat> almost everything is out of our control, uh, but there are certain things that are in our control and we can focus on, on those things, right? Um, and when we think that we can control a lot of the outcomes that we seek and a lot of the variable inputs to achieving those outcomes, then I think that's when we mistake the map for the territory. Like the training plan, for example, or the data that we're looking at from our watches or Strava 
become the thing that we think is the most important and we get overly focused on that. We kind of laser in on all of that and we obsess about, I got to hit this workout and this mileage and I have to do it at this time. And it has to be all of these little pieces of the puzzle become what I'm so focused on. And I think that I, for myself, I've seen this and, I've seen, and I think I've seen this in other athletes lose sight of paying attention to how you feel or why it matters to be running or, or what your broader goal is in the pursuit of endurance sports. <laughs> and it all becomes about yeah. numbers and data and outcomes. And that's how we start to, to lose sight. And when we can just focus on the things we can control and let go of the things that we can't control, I think it becomes easier. We become psychologically more relaxed um, in what we're doing, both in training and in racing. And we can let go of a little bit of the, the negative self-talk that comes, or even just the stress and anxiety that comes with the pressure, the pressure of trying to hit specific targets, goals, numbers, uh, getting into comparative data with other people or whatever uh, might happen. And so that was, that was my immediate brain dump after we had that conversation. So cool that, you know, it's so much about what I'm hoping that this podcast can be um, an opportunity for people to see that these meta concepts, the idea of the map and the territory does have significantly practical applications. However, those practical applications take time and they take expanding and broadening, widening, deepening the human experience to be open to seeing them that way. Because as you said, we're predictive motherfuckers. We want to predict. This is how we stay safe as a, as a nervous system. It's designed to keep us safe. Right. And we predict. And why do we predict? So we can stay safe, so we can stay in the zone. Um, and that if you, if instead you adopt an attitude that says, hey, safety is where I bring it, like where I come from, then, or the grounded place I'm in, which is super interesting. That's another whole topic. Um, then you've got more flexibility. There's a really interesting book. I don't know if you ever read it. Um, it's it's called Tough. It's highly recommended. I wrote a re I wrote a review for it in the for the Run Gnosis um, newsletter, and it it basically says the idea of mental toughness falls in four categories. Um, I'm just going to go through the first three of them because they're pertinent here. The first one is character. That at the base level, we're talking about character and toughness. This is where you're getting to, right? Like what happens is all the training around that you do, that you prepare for is designed to help you with the next two pieces, which is capacity. So you have the capacity to do the thing that's out there and the capability. So capacity is the depth of the full aerobic and, or if you talk about physiological, the aerobic, you've done some things, you've run 20 milers if you're a marathoner, you've run 40 milers if you're running a 50 miler, you've done these things to create a greater capacity um, to, and then a capability. These are there's a nuance there. I'm not going to go into it too deeply, but at the end of the day, when you get down to brass tacks, when the shit hits the fan, when it's really at the, when it's the nut cutting time, character is the place that we're in. And that piece never goes away. So your data at the end of the day is only factoring into this capability and capacity piece to a certain level from the point. So some basal level above it's now character. And who the fuck works on character anymore, Jason? Who even talks about character in a training program? To me, this is a major fault and flaw 
you know, we sometimes talk about purpose. We sometimes talk about meaning and those are crucial and critical. But just like you were talking about with the idea of a career that didn't hold you in that career because you were like, this is not a purpose. It's not a path with heart. It's not meaningful enough for me to do any damn thing with really in the long term. So then you have to scramble back and go, okay, well, the reason you're doing your career is because you have character issues. You're ish, not bad ones, but character things. You want to be a good father. You want to be a supporter. You want to be a provider. You want to be, um, you want to be providing something to the world. You want your work to be valued and to do something both in a small scale safety of your family into a big scale safety of how do we make the world a better place. And you shifted careers once you realized, hey, this is not a path with heart. Solar is cool. I love the idea of solar. That's where you were the, the business you were in. And it is. There's a lot of pathways of heart there and a lot of internal and external. But at the end of the day, it wasn't feeding the thing that was necessary. And so, like, you can get through it from a character perspective. Um, this is the the challenge with that book, Tough. One of the things that I really the one of the things I dig at it with is that there's something even below that character line, which we were talking about a view or an ontology, right? Like a kind of what is being in the first place. Um, but I'm, I, I assume this guy's a power lifter. I assume that it's just with either A, too big, too, I, he seems to me to be somebody who's probably thought about that, but it was too big to try to tackle in that book. Or he's just one of those people who's more of a, you know, he's more of a, a scientific materialist who just says, no, these are the things that we can track and we can trace. And so all that stuff moves into philosophical and or spiritual contexts, which are really slippery and hard to challenging to get with people. But if I were writing that book, I would say, okay, first, what's your view? <laughs> and then let's <laughs> yeah. talk about these other things. <laughs> but yeah, so cool. Hopefully um, folks enjoy that. I, I want to take a second because we had a reader, uh, a listener who uh, sent us some reflections. Um, these are from Alex Brenner. And if you're interested in um, reflecting on what Jason and I are talking about here, feel free to um, sign up for subscribe to the Run Gnosis um, newsletter. I write things there lately. I have not written a few things. I'm planning on being more consistent with that. But um, but we also have an online community um, hosted through Circle. And Jason and I are both on there. And um, this is where Alex sent. And if you sign up and subscribe, I will, I will give you access to that community. Um, so this is from Alex Brenner, um, a local athlete here in Austin. Um, he said, great episode. I thought it was funny when you guys started talking about consciousness and riffing on the fact that it's hard to define what is conscious, let alone what consciousness itself is or how it's produced by the human brain. Steve said something about the different theories of consciousness that would blow your mind and how we should just, shouldn't just trust anybody who claims to know about anything, any, who want we should not trust anybody who claims to know anything about it with certainty. That all hit close to home for me because of it's the reason why I quit neuroscience. After four years of undergrad, undergraduate study and two years of working in a research lab, I personally felt like the consciousness question, the hard problem, was sort of a dead end that felt as, and a dead end as far as scientific research goes. And it serves as a pretty good launching pad for someone, me, to start looking and exploring philosophy instead. There's no real consensus about what consciousness even is or whether it's something that is even exclusively possessed by living organisms. Well-respected figures in the field believe that all matter may possess con consciousness, and then it's not a question of whether something is conscious, but the degree to which that thing is conscious. The human brain is limited by the fact that it is a piece of hardware trying to make sense of the software that comes preloaded on it. 
And I think that if we ever do make breakthroughs in terms of the hard problem, it'll come from an AI black box rather than a team of neuroscientists. So now I'm in law school. <laughs> what a what a wonderful what what, what a wonderful yeah. uh, biography and story there. But he goes even further and he, he jumps into this idea of simulation theory. So he says one of the other things I want to tack on was the mention of the simulation argument because it's really interesting and useful in this conversation. Steve mentions that Elon Musk has brought it up recently. If you're interested in digging deeper, I would read Nick Bostrom and David Chalmers' ideas about it instead. The bare bones version boils down to the question of, do you believe humans will ever be capable of highly realistic computer simulations of reality? If you do, then the possibilities that, that we are one, that the possibilities are that we, one, we do make those simulations, or two, humanity collectively decides never to actually go ahead and create a simili- reality simulator. Okay, so let me break this down real quick just to be sure because it gets a little confusing. I'm going to jump in here. Yeah. The idea of simulation theory is that there's a simulation that some future is making of their ancestors who we are and that we're living in this computer simulation. So the idea basically is if you think that it's possible that that simulation might happen in some future um or two that humans collectively decide never to do it so if you think it's one it's more than likely math says we're probably living in a simulation right now if humanity creates one single simulated reality that is so detailed that the residents of the simulation can tell the difference then it means that there's a 50 percent chance that we're in one now and a 50 percent chance that if we're living that we're that a 50% chance that we're living in some kind of real reality. Knowing how humanity is, though, we probably wouldn't make just one. So the real odds would be like one times that we are actually living in a real reality, where X is the total number of simulations that are ever run. So if you run one, if your great, 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 great daughter, great, 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 great granddaughter runs one, and my great, 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 great granddaughter runs one, then we now have X's, right? So there's three. And then every time you used to go to 10 and you start getting into numbers that get crazy. And I think all of us know that if one person could simulate, nearly anybody would. And so probabil- probabilistically, this is what he's talking about here. Um, so if you think something like a Sims computer game, for example, then there would be hundreds of millions of simulations with only one real reality, making it super unlikely that the one that we're currently making it super unlikely that that's the one that we are currently in, especially if those simulations also become capable of creating simulations themselves. So anyway, he keeps going. Um, and he, he, he frames it. Well, I'll just finish it off. He says, obviously, there's no way to know whether or not this, any of this is true. And importantly, it doesn't really matter if it is. That's very important. Yep. So the whole thing is just a thought experiment. But I think it's a really interesting angle in the conversation about the map not being the territory. If you want a better explainer that goes through more in depth, the podcast ep- this podcast episode does a great job of driving home the nuts and bolts. And I listened to that episode. I'll, I'll link it in our show notes, Jason. It <laughs> okay. was phenomenal. Um, and not only was it phenomenal, but it's the epilogue of a five of a 10 episode series on the end of the world. Um, and it's by this guy named um, Josh uh, Clark. And he's the creator or well, he's the one of the co-hosts of um, How Stuff Works, which is like one of the top 10 podcasts in the world. Like it's been listened to. It's like started in 08. It's been going on. It talked about any how any stuff works. And I think his his pea brain was like, I got to break down what's going on with this collapse scenario and i'm I'm very collapse conscious personally over the last six months to a year i've kind of gone down that little wormhole i cannot i've already listened to three episodes in this podcast series i cannot recommend it enough it is meta next level about what is reality and what reality is functioning as in the context of how are we going to get through what he calls a great what what he highlights as a great filter so this idea that 
we seem to be going through something right now, something pretty big. I think most of us get the sense that that's the case and that there's some kind of shift happening. You could either see the negative side or the positive side of that polarity. Yeah. But if you're curious about those things, I cannot recommend enough this ep these episodes. I've only read, listened to the first three and then the last one, but it is well worth the hour that he spends in each episode to break down these concepts, especially if you have any interest in, a in AI, intelli alien intelligences, the likelihood of these things, the questions of what what a collapse would look like, why we're in the position that we're in. It, it's just beautifully done and non-sectarian. He's not got a he's not got an axe to grind. He's just opening the door to all that stuff. So anyway, I just wanted to say thank you so much to Alex for that post. Um, I won't necessarily read everything that everybody posts, but since Alex was the first one to jump in, I thought I would honor him and honor his argument. And then just to say, yes, if you follow the simulation theory. And I had thrown the simulation theory away, Jason, as a, even a remote possibility. But after listening to that episode, I stand here and say, it is a valid point of view that should be very seriously considered. It is, it is as likely as any other scenario that we currently have for what basement reality is, like what the ground of all reality is, as any other one. And um, so thanks, Alex, for bringing it to my attention, because I like to know what I don't know. I especially love knowing what I don't, knowing that I don't know something. I do, I like you too, I love to live in this question space, yeah. right? Um, that the question is more important than the answer. But it, as we talked about with the earlier on, like those predictive attributes make us suddenly get, feel unsafe and uncomfortable. But part of, for me, part of resilience and being tough and being alive in this world is to keep asking those questions no matter how they make me feel and then tracing those lines through this embodied experience. Like there's just something here in this current one, maybe one, maybe multiple, but at least this currently, I know this is a precious lifetime. Like this is a precious lifetime. Maybe it's one and I'm worm food at the end of this game. Maybe it's a simulation of which I would never wake up from. Or maybe it's something or something completely altogether different, but these ontolo I'm an ontologically agnostic is what I would say. I'm agnostic to what this is and just trying to stay as open and aware as possible so that the next generations, your son, my stepdaughter, are more resilient and flexible and ready to handle whatever might come down the pipe. So Anyway, I, I'm pretty sure we can transition this really quickly into identity because these, yeah. <laughs> the, this topic here about what basement reality is sort of filters up to this embodied experience that we're in. That you know that we're 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 fine. We at some point in time through our developmental structures, and I think they say somewhere around two or three years old, and and in, in psychology's um, child child development, they say that we start to gain a sense of self. Um, and and maybe you can sort of unpack this concept because you're the one who who this is the topic that you brought to bear very early on in our I mean in our first conversation you was like I want to talk about identity and I want to yeah. talk about identity and groundedness so um, I think we've transitioned pretty well so why don't you yeah. open up here and give us an idea of where we're going and just for our listeners just to have this one second pause is Jason and I don't have copious notes in this area we are really just spitballing here and running away with these concepts and ideas. But I do promise you, we'll bring it back to running or at least to um, being an embodied and, and, and how you can be more effective as a human being. So yeah. take it away, Jason. Yeah. And I, I do have some specific things I want to say about this topic in the context of running. Um, but before we get there, I, um, 
I selfishly brought this topic into the mix because it's something I have struggled a lot with recently. And this podcast for us is about exploring these questions that we have about the world, right? And so we're going to do this right here. Uh, we're hopefully going to learn something for ourselves, um, challenge each other's ideas, and it'll be great. I think um, as a transition off of Alex's comments, he talked about getting to the end of the line with the scientific study of neuroscience and understanding the mind beyond the brain. And uh, I feel like that's what we want to accomplish with this podcast, right? Is we're going we're gonna to go to the end of the pavement and then we're going to go a whole lot farther <laughs> into the unknown <laughs> and it's going to be super fun. So we'll talk a little bit about identity and then I will try to shatter the entire concept of self and identity. Um, and then we'll come back to why it still matters and why it's so hard to let go of, mm -hmm. I think, right? Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. You got a task. You yeah. got a task in front yeah, of you, it's brother. Be hard. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, so I think we first have to start by talking about what identity even is, right? Um, and I think that I, I think it is um, there are multiple parts to identity. It, it, it includes things, at least like on the surface in our everyday experience, it includes things like our, our role in life. Am I a parent, um, a, a partner, a husband, or a wife? Um, it, it includes our gender for a lot of us. Um, that can be an important part of our identity our career, our extracurricular activities. So, um, you know, maybe it's runner, climber, um, and that's a, that's a hobby. That's an extracurricular activity. It's not part of our actual profession or how we make money, right? Um, if I was running for money, maybe I call myself a professional athlete, and then within that, I might be a runner or whatever. And, um, and, and so I guess I think of identity in that way. And for, for me, and I think maybe for everybody, we give more weight to certain elements of our identity. Um, and I don't know what your experience might be with that, Steve, for yourself or for the athletes that you've worked with. Um, for me, for a long time, it was um, what I did for an occupation. You know, it was, it was a Marine. I was a Marine for a while after high school and I, and I clung to that identity for a long time. And then I had this space of time in college where I was just a student that wasn't, you know, my, like I wasn't ident identifying as that. It was more like, it's just a fact, like I'm a student, I'm going to college. It's a temporary thing. Um, part, part of like getting somewhere. And then I, you know, didn't really, stick too much to what I was doing as a career, um, as an important part of my identity. What I, what I really started to take on more was the, the athlete side of what I do, getting more into running, mm -hmm. you know, as that, as that for me developed and evolved throughout college and I, I became relatively good at it and then started a running business with my wife and then got more into coaching that all kind of like just took on more <clears throat> and runner became kind of like transcended all of that work that I was doing as a coach, as a race director, um, to me kind of like sat at the top and 
what I struggled with from all of this is that I, I started to tie my my feelings of self-worth or my concepts of self-worth really highly to my to this identity of being a runner. Um, and I and so I like drifted away from the marine thing. That's not really such an important part of my identity, although it's an important part of who I am as a person. And it became this running thing. And then when running, you know, when I when I just couldn't do running like a 20 year old anymore, it was like, holy shit, what is happening to my life? Um, <laughs> so anyway, that's that's kind of the the arc narrative of, of why identity. But I'm curious how you think about identity and um, how how you might define that. Is it one thing? Is it multiple things? Um, yeah, for from a personal perspective, um, and this is a big, this was a huge challenge for me, and especially for people who, um, you know, I think it's a huge challenge for everybody, but I can't really speak to other people's experiences. I can only speak to mine, and mine was rather unique in that I had a father who ran, and at six, I just wanted to be like my dad. What kid doesn't want to be like his dad? Well, maybe not everyone, but I know your kid wants to be like you, right? So, um, and my father was running and I just, and he found, it seemed like when he would come home from his run, he would be at work all day and then he would immediately come into the family. He had a big family. We, I have three siblings um, and he would walk out the door and be gone for an hour to an hour and a half. Um, you know, that I don't know exactly how that functioned with my brain pan, but uh, ultimately I would just sit on, I would just wait and sit on the front porch. And my dad would then, my, my dad is so wonderful. He would like come back a little bit early and we would go for a little two mile run. So I started running at, at six years old um, as a fun, just playful thing. But when we moved from Pennsylvania to, to, to San Antonio, Texas, there were lots of opportunities to compete. And of course, kids want to play and playing was competing to me at that age. But very quickly between eight and 12 years old, as we're growing more in the developmental phases of our lives, I, I got to a place where I couldn't separate who Steve Sisson the boy was and who Steve Sisson, the runner was. And so for me, identity has always been deeply tied into my running in a way that's been um, now at age 52, it, it is, it's a beautiful thing. I see it unfolding and the gift that running is to me, but for very long windows of my life, formative periods of my life running at <laughs> throughout various stages, I have, uh, I've really wrestled with this question. So, you know, from an identity perspective, the way I look at these things is this is what we're supposed to be doing in this precious lifetime. <laughs> we're supposed to be exploring what this particular, okay. I, I'm not a big fan of mind body dualism. Okay. I, I, I don't, I don't think it jives with my experience. Yeah. I don't ever feel a brain. So, I kind of think that I'm looking out these eyes, seeing a world, and that's a self, the primary self. And so I just need to keep doing these experiences. And these identities are just like little category boxes that I can play in. Now, I'm 52 years old, so I can do that. But it took me a long time to get to that point where I realized that there are all kinds of category boxes. I'm a dog owner. I'm a taxpayer. Yeah. I'm a employee i'm a boss i'm i mean all these little things are just little tiny things and that if we get fluid with that identity structures which i think happens as you age you know it's a beautiful thing for those people who are maybe younger listening to this there is help here it comes along with 
wisdom of just being alive, but you begin to just see, begin to see these identity structures as loose held categories that allow you to play. And that maybe the main job we're supposed to be doing is just being, getting really, really good at playing these various roles while, while trying to limit that separation that seems to be so baked into our model. So I kind of went a little bit deep there. Um, but one of the things that I think is really, really critical here to me, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately when it comes to it. So let's just unpack real quick. Identity is a, in my view, I'm just going to say, and we'll, I'll get you to assent or dissent. And if you dissent, then we'll pause and, and talk about it a little bit. But identity is just a manifestation, some kind of one manifestation, sometimes the primary, but one manifestation of a self, of a thing that's looking out these eyeballs that has looks at and somehow connects to the hand that's in, in front of his face or the legs yes. that are moving him through space or whatever the case may be, right? Do you agree yes. with that? That identity yes. is sort of the conceptual arrangement or the one little the one little node on a bigger thing, right? Um, yes. And to me, I wonder about, um, I, I'm a spiritual person. I've been a spiritual person my whole life, but I went through a long phase of secular atheism. And um, one of the things that was always challenging throughout that secular atheism phase was that I just believed that we had a soul. I didn't understand it. I don't, understand, I don't know what it is, but it just seemed to me that when I cut off that spiritual arm, that, that religious arm, that there was this God-shaped void that many people talk about, right? That God-shaped void to me now, I just call it a soul. I've always called it a soul. And I'm wondering, and I don't know this for sure, Jason, but one of the things I'm playing with is this concept that a self is just a scientific materialist version of the soul. And it's just, there's no way to unpack. Soul's too messy, too religious, too spiritual, not scientific enough. And so we just have cut it off and called it a self. And so I'm playing with that. And I think of self as essence more than sort of some kind of uh, selfness, right? So it's more deep, where self seems to me to be cut off from some mystery or cut off from some kind of experience. Like it's like, like where's the experiencer in a self? Do we talk about an experiencer in a self? And I don't think it holds that container personally. Yeah. And so a soul holds that a soul is a bigger container than a self. And so to me, it's like, well, let's just get rid of this idea of self. I, I'm not saying for everyone to, I'm just saying for me, it seems to be fuck self. I'm going to live into soul for a while and just see where that takes me because self isn't helped. Hasn't helped me one little bit. It's just been more confusing and it is more of that scientific materialist view. You know, basically psychology is this idea of the scientific study of the mind and behavior. And I'm like, show me the mind. Show me the fucking mind. I can know we got a brain because I can't see mine, but I know we got a brain because I've seen enough cadavers, but yeah. I've never fucking once seen a mind. So, and I've never seen a self. I've never seen a soul. So let's not, why are we going to throw soul out? Because it's deeper and messier and juicier and funkier and funner and playful and scary and all these other things. And self is dry and it's like a fucking popcorn fart, man. It's like just <laughs> like nothing. <laughs> oh man. It's nothing. Uh, so anyway, I don't know. Let you, I'll let you, I'll let you move with that and go where you want to with that. Yeah, but you know, we yeah. move from identity to self. And my view is like, is are these things so limiting? Is there something more we can do with that stuff? Like, you know, is it juicier? Yeah. Um, okay, so I I think for me, Buddhism has the most compelling line of thought on this question of self and identity. And in in the Buddhist thinking, 
identity, like you were saying, as a manifestation or an outgrowth of the concept of the self, of believing in the concept of self. And um, that is, so the, the Buddhist idea of non-self ultimately leads you to this idea of nirvana, which is to like exist in a state of conscious experience that does not include you having any like residual attachment to the concept of self. Like you've let go of all of that. And with it goes a lot of things like ego and different sort of experiences that we have. This is really, really hard <laughs> um, to, to get to, right? And um, th through Sam Harris, I, I have uh, followed somewhat a guy named Jack Cornfield, who is one of the, mm -hmm. he's a, a, an American, or at least a Western philosopher who spent a bunch of time basically as a monk and a, and a guru and, and was at the forefront of bringing Eastern philosophy to Western society. And he quotes uh, another Buddhist figure, Ajahn Shah, who says, um, you have to consider and contemplate this non-self slowly. You can't just think about this or your head will explode. Like, it's really so hard to think, okay, I, I, I don't exist, right? All this talk about I, I'm going to do this thing, or I did this thing, or this thing happened to me. For a Buddhist, there is no I, nothing happened to you. Um, you, you are basically an, a passive observer or an almost passive observer of conscious experience. And if you can, it, it's really hard to, I feel like that's a, it's like standing on a tightrope basically to hold really that concept or that idea of non-self. And, um, you know, Sam Harris, uh, I subscribe to his waking up app. I use it for meditation, but mostly for the educational content that's in there. But he has this thing that he he often does in meditation where he asks you to meditate with your eyes open and to sort of take a soft gaze into the room and then to periodically look for the one who's seeing. If you think you are a self looking out into the world then look for the one who's seeing. Can you find, in the, in the span of a finger snap even, can you find the thing that's seeing, the thing that's looking? And, and um, what helps me get a little bit closer to this idea is a practice of like sitting and, and listening. If you, if you pay attention to all the sounds in the space you're in, you can start to notice that you can't not hear them. You can't turn off hearing, and the only way you can turn off seeing is to close your eyes. But even then, there's a whole visual field that you experience once you close your eyes, and you can't not see that except to stop paying attention to it, to turn away from awareness. And in that moment, you're not consciously aware of these things that are happening, but they're still happening around you. And so the fact that you can't you as a, you don't have a self that can actually turn off any part of the experience that you find yourself in, like hearing or seeing or feeling, uh, whether it's a sensory touch or the emotion that you feel from some kind of experience in your life. 
And, um, and so there is something to me, whether it's soul or it's the nebulous consciousness that, that is an experience that, that is some kind of real. And this gets to Alex's point about whether or not we live in a simulation or not, it doesn't really matter because every day I'm having experiences and these experiences have a real effect on me, right? Like I experience anger and sadness and joy and, and, um, we, what we can do in, in the Buddhist idea of non-self is if you can start to break apart, um, this idea of self and get closer to non-self and um, see identity as as not just a manifestation of self, but as like a superstructure of all of these maps that that get brought together in layers, like a like a GIS construct. Um, then you can start to better make sense of all of the parts of that that will affect you, right? And so I'll give you an example from running, if that's cool. Um, So, you know, if I start to, let's say I I start to identify as a runner, right? There's like, I'm, I'm just a human. I go out and run. I'm a kid. I'm playing. I'm just running around all the time. I run to get to my friend's house. I run because I'm playing basketball. I run because I'm playing other sports. I run because it's PE class or whatever. I just go out and run. But at some point I decide I'm going to identify as a runner. I'm going to call myself a runner. I'm a runner. People are like, Oh, what do you, what do you do? Do you work out or something? I'm a runner. I'm an ultra runner or some shit like that. Right. Well, um, what happens is that this structure or, or map, if you will, uh, this identity point, it draws my ego into the puzzle right? Which ego is part of that self. Like I still have this idea that I'm a self. I have an identity. I am this thing. I do this thing. It, it partially defines me. And that when I pull my ego in, that pushes me to try to achieve more or, or improve my self-worth, right? By becoming a better runner. Because I'm a runner, I have to become a better runner. I have to be the best runner I could possibly be or else uh, I'm not worth much as a runner, right? And so now I'm into all of this like data and metrics and I start comparing myself to other runners. Well, what is that runner doing? How's that runner finding success? How do I stack up against him or her or that field of people, right? And um, all of a sudden now I have introduced like all this psychological suffering because I'm like, I got to worry about whether or not I'm I'm hitting the metrics and I'm getting the things done that are on my training plan. And then how do I compare to the people I'm running around? And so that, you know, that like right there, all of a sudden, just that piece of my identity and its relation to the concept of self creates all of this opportunity for for suffering all around constructs that at the end of the day don't mean shit that didn't mean anything when i was a kid and i was just out running on the fields right or whatever and um i did just fine as a runner before there was even a gps watch or a strava or an ability to see what other people are doing or before i knew what a training plan was or that there was a world of coaching um and for the for the 
the last thing I'll say to close this all up, for the Buddhists, the Buddhist view on identity is that the notion of self and any attendant identity, it's delusional and it's one of the single greatest sources of suffering for the human experience. For those reasons. Yeah, I think that this... And brother, you are... I'm going to use... I'm going to use the 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 Christian faith religion that I came up in of telling you brother because I feel you brother because you are preaching something and oh you're sharing something that I think um and in a way you're sharing something in a way that I think is expressly pertinent to a human being and especially a runner and I I just honor that you have this desire to share this with other people to say, if you ever have an experience of suffering, it's good to get under the hood and Mm -hmm. try to figure this out. And the best way to get under the hood is to sit quietly in a room and explore. And there are myriad of programs and processes. You know, you were talking about Jack Kornfield. He's a, he's a, he's a, he's he's brilliant. Um, his his view comes from a Theravadan Buddhist perspective, which is yeah. mind, and he created mindfulness. He's he's sort of the the grand master of mindfulness, right. um, which is a you know I have some challenges with mindfulness as a structured religious slash now secular process, right? Not because it's not useful. I think it's incredibly, incredibly useful, but it does not have much mystery. And to me, mystery is baked into the fabric of everything. But that, regardless of that, they're trying to make us, that Theravadan Buddhist perspective is to break down that self and to recognize that when you get down to the finest grain, it's still just a concept of fine grain. And then you pull back out to the largest, most open, expansive awareness, and it's still just that one thing. Which brings me to my thought here, coming back to soul. Um, all suffering, in my view, comes from separateness. Separateness is a non-reality. We are one. When I you look out your eyes, I'm looking out your eyes. I just don't get to stand in that particular position. I mean, all yes. of the wisdom traditions of the world, all of the wisdom traditions of the world are telling us this. But yet what's going on in our construct, and this has happened, you know, it's been an ongoing process. I mean, it's, first of all, it's baked into our DNA, safety, okay? But one of the interesting things, I love this idea of polyvagal theory. I don't know if you're aware of polyvagal theory. It's like super interesting to me. I'm not a fan of its, uh, of its hierarchies, but let me give you a quick, quick outline of what polyvagal theory basically says. It says that our nervous system is regulating, and we have three different hierarchies of regulation. The first regulation is one that we had when we were turtles or that lower creature, right? And, and, and basically, if shit comes down the pike that's coming after us, we just whoop, curl up in our little shell and stay away and just close off okay that we're baked that's baked into our dna at some level the next hierarchy is that of 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 higher a little bit higher animal and that is flight or fight okay this is the place that and most people they'll talk about flight fight or freeze all they're doing is talking about all those things that are going on in our nervous system that are supposed to be hierarchically and evolutionarily designed to protect us to get to keep safety because this is evolutionarily we're supposed to 
make babies and keep the species going. And we're hardwired for that, right? And um, so those two levels. And then once we get to mammal, we suddenly get a higher level nervous system. This one is its, its response for safety is connection. Very interestingly. And every mammal is fighting this lower levels of nervous system functionality, flight, fight, or freeze. But I like to go freeze first because it's very important for people to recognize that that's the first one. Then flight or fight, right? And then it's connection. Isn't this interesting? Now, this is a psychological theory definitely brought on by, I think Stephen Porges is the guy who wrote it. I recently read a book called... Um, I'm forgetting the name of it. It's ground, uh, anchored, not grounded. Maybe this will help us transition. But, um, <laughs> but their their theory is the basic theory is that if you can move beyond these lower levels of um, of nervous system response, and the nervous system is just basically regulating, co-regulating, constantly regulating. It's the mind. The brain is connected to the nervous system, and this and the nervous system is connected to the organs, and the organs are where we're getting a lot of. And from different viewpoints, it's where much of what our cognitive system is operating. It's not just in the brain. It's this nervous system. But isn't it interesting that they're telling us that our highest order nervous system is connection, not separate. Yeah. And, and that we operate and we can handle safety-related issues effectively, more effectively, when we're in a connected space. And nearly every one of us know that, that if we have significant challenges in our life, going it alone has never helped. This is a whole idea of therapy in theory, in, in theory right? Um, yeah. why we're in long-term committed relationships. Is it, is it really? I mean, we know looking down at hierarchy, down, down our evolutionary cycle and in different constructs, no, it's a lot better to spill your seed all over everywhere, not just in one and not just to stay with one, but to get it out there as much as you possibly can. So why are we, why are we then holding on to how we evolved to have families? Was this a, I, is it, it, I think it has to do with this. I, I think polyvagal theory gives us an interesting way to think about this. Now, my problem with polyvagal theory is I don't like hierarchies. I think they're useful categorization for humans. To me, I think our freeze response is very valuable and useful and effective at times and places. Our flight or fight is very valuable, useful, and effective in times and places. And that, in, But for most of our waking life as mammals, it's better to be in an interconnected, in a connected space. And so anyway, all this to come back to is this suffering is created through separateness and identity is necessary so that we can effectively connect. But when we, when we don't bring it back, this is the problem of all the scientific method in the modern era, not, well, you know, since the last 250, 400 years, we've moved, we first, we got rid of all religious notions and spiritual notions. We've cut those out. So connectedness is, our methods and modes of connectedness are gone. And then we've got, a, we've got a, a system of scientific method, which is incredibly useful and valuable, but it's basically disconnecting us. It's deconstructing the scenario to get it down to brass tacks. Nothing wrong with that. But when is it going to come back to a whole? When are we going to reintegrate whatever we deconstructed? When are we going to bring that deconstruction into an integrative phase? And if we bring it into an integrative phase, then what happens? Now we're whole or more whole. We're now at least we're connected. And so I think this is a big problem that we have in the last 250 years. And to me, it's like 
it can get answered with this idea that you are me and I am you. And all the wisdom traditions have told us that this is a true statement. Nearly all of them, at least their mystical sides. And you know, anybody that's listening to this will realize really quickly, I am definitely a mystic. So, but my, I come to it from a, I'm not non-rational. I mean, I got a brain. I'm going to use that motherfucker, right? I'm going to use this shit. But I do think at the base level, polyvagal theory, I'm not saying it's the whole thing, but I'm just saying it is a way to think about this. And it is an interesting, another pathway that's telling us connectionness. Yeah. So a couple of thoughts that I had here, and then I think I can tie this into groundedness. Um, The self, the concept of a self is inherently separate, right? It separates me, I, myself, from everything else and everyone else in the world. And, um, and, and I, you know, certain religions like Christianity bake all of that, like self and separateness and the individual, it, like that is all part of the story, the construct, the narrative, the idea, the philosophy. And that's just a huge problem, right? There's even like original sin and some other crazy ass shit that has you starting off as, not just an independent person, but a inherently flawed and independent person. You need to spend your entire life trying to cleanse yourself ritualistically. Um, and that's just like, <laughs> fuck your mind up on a social level. Um, and, and I like this, you know, so if we can start to see that, that we're all stardust, right? We're all part of the same experience. And like you said, I am you, you are me. If like I'm seeing this, experiencing the same thing you're seeing, right? Like whatever is happening in the world that's coming into my conscious awareness is the same as yours. And if I could stand in your shoes and you could stand in mine, kind of see the same thing, we're going to have different interpretations of it based on our views and our character and things like that. But um, so then the, another thing is that the other thing I wanted to bring up is um, I was recently listening to Alan Watts, who's another sort of legendary philosopher in the space of Eastern traditions and bringing them to the West. And he was talking about how, um, even if you take like a Buddhist philosophy or any other philosophy or religion, you strip it down to its philosophical components, it gets uninteresting because it now has no magic or mysticism in it. And the thing is that when you if if you can get to this understanding of like i'm a whole part of this world and there's this thing of conscious experience and most of what i see and think about is real every day isn't real that's fucking magic and could you just exist in the space of looking out into the world every day and being like damn we can't really explain how all of this work evolution's kind of interesting but all i see is fucking magic when i stand in the mountains of colorado or Canada or anywhere else, I look around and I just see magic, dude. Like I can't, I I can conceptually understand a whole lot of scientific theories about how some of this came to be. And you can even watch some of these geologic processes unfolding, but at the same time, I can't help but think this is just magic. I can't, there's no other way to explain it. The fact that like I can get a cut and I can, my body will heal or that we can reproduce ourselves. That's fucking magic. I don't know what else to call it. Right. (laughs) 
Well, it, it, it has both. So it, there's this, you know, this is a really interesting idea of the one. The, 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 the Taoists have this concept of the one, and then yes. the one is two, yin and yang. But inside of each, and those are masculine and feminine, you might say positive and negative. Mm-hmm. These are not male and female. They are, they are, they are, and we talked about this last time. We need to remove that genderfication from that concept. We both can do. When we were little, in our mama's bellies, we were both. Yes. At some point in time, we went, Dook, right? And so be careful what you identify with because you can be both. You are both. You were at one point both. But anyway, yeah. this, we, 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 we have, I don't even know where I was going with that. I just lost my whole train of thought. What was I saying? The the oneness. Taoism. Oh, yeah. So the Taoists say there's one and then there's two, right? And then from the two come 10,000 things, the forms. To me, this is an, un. if you can wrap your brain around this concept, and I recommend you take it for a run. Mm-hmm. Take it for a run. Because what you're explaining there, Jason, when you're saying I'm standing in the mountains and I look around and I'm, it's magic. You are one of 10,000 things moving back up or back down a stream into the two, the masculine, the feminine, the polarity, and then into the one, and then back out to two, and then back into the 10,000 things. And what you're feeling there is this magic mystery. In my point of view, that magic mystery is that we don't exactly know how it works. But the cool project of Western civilization and the scientific method is we're figuring more and more and more of it out. But baked into that method is that we cannot have mystery. But I'm like, but the whole subjective experience of the human being from the very start is a mystery. So how do we do that? And I just think what we need to do is we just need to keep in mind that that we can be and. I love the and. The ampersand is my favorite symbol. We're both. I don't even need to say both and because both and then puts it into two. It's one thing, meaning two, right? One is two. These are, this, is not a con, this is not a conflict. And what's really cool, when it moves to the three, it's we're bodied. So you've got polarity of, of positive and negative, yin-yang. There's one, then it goes to positive, negative, yin-yang, and then boop, pops up to a triangle. Boom, all of a sudden, where are we at? Embodied experience. Does it go to other levels? Lots of weirdos like me think maybe it does, that there's all kinds of dimensionality and other things. But these things are these are things are baked into I just wish that we had an education system that was ch- raising our children to take these basic fundamental concepts ontologically, agnostically as a space. My big problem with with Sam Harris, I don't think he bakes mystery into the process process. He's got that shit figured out. It seems to me, every time I've ever heard him, he says, I think I got this shit figured out. Like, free will. The question of free will. Yeah. Like, scientifically and spiritually from the Buddhist perspective, and I have listened to many, many conversations that Sam Harris has had with the public about free will, because this is a deeply interesting topic to me, and we don't need to go down it too, too far. But ultimately, my challenge with those models is just where is the mystery? Where's the mystery? Because what you're just talking about, that magic, is that space. And I'm not saying that Sam Harris has cut that out from reality. I'm just saying, can we, can we keep, we need this as a 
as a, as as one of the poles, or at least as a part of the thing that we are constantly working and operating with. And when we talk about a self and an identity, it is mystery because we're finding ourselves looking, coming back full circle. We're looking out these eyeballs onto this. And you can only experience those beautiful mountains as a one of 10,000 things, right? Yep. And, and, and how do we do that? Don't fucking, like you and I talked about this in our first episode. Why do we have to categorize it and put it in a box and pin it on a fucking wall somewhere yeah. and say, that's reality? Can't we just sit in that mystery for a little while and yeah. just percolate in it and flow in it and let it play out and then move into our identifications and then interrogate them loosely and give them flexibility and freedom, see how they make us better people and live ethically, have more responsibilities and take care of the ones that we love around us. But here's the thing. If anything you're doing is separating, you're fundamentally fucking with the fabric of reality from my point of view. Now, I'm not going to judge you for that because I do know that we're all designed to be that way. We, we sort of, but I think our part of our, what it means to be human is to move from oneness as we were children born, then into some self-identification process by which somewhere along the line, we're designed to move into other phases. And we've just stayed in this adolescent phase where we like to, where we like to look in a mirror, tell ourselves how terrible we are, beat off and take no physical, no, take no responsibility and enjoy all the things that our parents gave us. <laughs> but yet here we are at 45 and 50 years old doing the same shit, thinking yeah. that it's all different, that somebody's going to pick up my shit. Somebody's going to clean up my room. Somebody's going to take care of my stuff. Like it's not going to work that way. Like that's not actually how it works. Wow. I just kind of went all over everywhere there. So that's, that. <laughs> that's great. I mean, so an, an important part of what you're saying here too, is that, you know, identity has a tendency to be static and the human experience is not. We are every moment of every day, a new person. Um, and our relationship to the past, to the future exists only in the present. And, um, you know, so it's like, I, I'm not who I was yesterday or who I'll be tomorrow. <laughs> um, and, and that's yeah. an important thing you to know, carry you, through. You, yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And maybe to wrap this whole thing up and maybe we'll move on to, maybe we'll do groundedness in our next episode um, so we can get a little more deeper in it because I do think this idea of identity and self comes to a place where we can actually make it whole and reintegrate it um, through the idea of being grounded and um, opens up a lot of other opportunities. But one of the things you said earlier about, about when you were going through the Buddhist model and talking about how... Um, how that recognition of our of our that 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 self is not really there right there's another there's another there's another stream of buddhism um that's based on mahayana buddhism which is opposite of theravadan and it's going in more mystery and it uses it moves into the highest for there's some east there's some indian forms of it but primarily it's mostly being found out in the tibetan model that we see today which is really weird for a lot of people i think of theravadan buddhism as protestantism and a christian model and um and the catholic model is is this idea of tibetan buddhism because they have multiple gods they're using archetypes and other things to try to grow through to try to evolve the human but their main focus at the highest highest level is not that there's nothing there 
it goes to that. It goes into it because that's one of the, the challenges of Theravada Buddhism is there's nothing there. That's emptiness, right? And so Chen basically, which is the or Mahamudra, which is the the, the the avenue that goes that direction, says if you can just jump into awareness right now immediately. And there are models out there for this, and and Western models now, where people can get glimpses and tastes of this open awareness, which is the space that eventually Theravadan Buddhism and they all come back together, right? Theravadan Buddhism and 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 and, and Tibetan Buddhism, in my view, do come back to this oneness, this wholeness, this non-dual, empty awareness space but the theravadins call it empty and the buddhists call it open and and the, and the, sorry the tibetans call it open are they different are they the same i don't know certainly the sort of i think the personality types gravitate one to the other a little bit more i think your scientific types move a little bit more down the theravadin path down that mindfulness path because it's it's a deconstructive model like to deconstruct deconstruct and there's ochen model the mahamudra model the, the, the the ult, quote unquote, I'm putting air quotes around ultimate, but the highest level of this Tibetan side is that we do eventually move into this expansive open awareness that's available to us all time in all places, which is this one, this mystery that you and I have been talking about. So, um, yeah, this has been so much fun, Jason. It really has. So much fun. <laughs> <laughs> do you have any uh, last comments for folks that you want to to put out there that, um, uh, we didn't really dial in a whole lot about how people might be able to use this for their specific writing. I mean, you did highlight those early on. I, I don't think we need to go that far because I do think that in a lot of ways, these things play out boots on the ground, you know, shoes on, you know, shoes on the, on the, on the pavement or on the trail. You, you, but I think it's useful for you to keep open and, and fluid and flexible and just keep exploring. Don't yeah. be afraid of your body though. The body is the way to do this. The emotions, and we're our nerve, as I said with polyvagal theory, our nerve, our nervous system is regulating, co-regulating. We're in this process of regulation. It's just follow the things, keep following them. Yeah, the body is beautiful. It does amazing things. Yeah, I think my, you know my biggest caution for the uh, bringing this into the running context is just looking out for how your identity as a runner will draw your ego into the equation and make you do all kinds of batshit crazy things that don't make any sense and aren't real. And that actually don't correspond to your stated goal at the end of the day. Right. Yeah. Um, and then the last thing. So as we kind of segue forward for our next episode into groundedness, um, the reason I brought the groundedness idea into this is that <clears throat> as I started to realize that um, I was really bought into this whole a like linear career path and life model. I was going to be the upstanding citizen, right? Go went to the military to get money to go to college. I go to college, I get a job. I'll do this play play this path, right? And then, as I mentioned before, at the end of every rainbow was an empty pot of gold, right? I, and I kind of found myself at one point wondering, like, why do I do all of this? Why am I working so hard? And like everything that I've thought was I real and I believed in is all fucking bullshit. Once I got inside the machine and saw how it all worked, right? All the mystery of it was gone. It was no longer like, ooh, what will college be like? What will a job be like? Like college was super fascinating. Jobs fucking suck. Um and I went from there into a mindfulness practice and I've over the last six, seven years I've just been in this deep dive on 
Buddhist and Stoic philosophies for the most part. And then like what comes up around that, you know, obviously you get introduced to all kinds of ideas, but um, I, for a, for a very long period of time, and I'm still in this, but I think I'm at the tail end of it. I, I became <clears throat> unmoored, you know, like it was easy to be grounded when I'm like, yeah, I have a, I have a clear path set out. I'm going to go to the Marine Corps. I'm going to get money to college. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to get married. I'm going to have a kid. I did all that shit, you know? And then, but like without having that clear focus, it's easy to be like, Oh, where do I go in life next? Like, how do I understand the I and how I show up here and what's going to be my new identity and who, who am I? Right. Like I don't have all of these things that, we're inculcated from grade school to grow up thinking about, right? What do you want to be when you grow up? Not what kind of person do you want to be? <laughs> that would be too interesting for our society. Uh, it's more about like, how, what, what are you going to be, right? What are you going to do? How are you going to contribute positively to society? And, um, you know, so <clears throat> I think that the, belief structures we hold ground us a lot. Um, and so if you think about somebody who finally decides after a, a lifetime of going to church and believing in Christianity that they don't believe in it anymore, they're going to be unmoored for a little while, probably, and searching for a new value structure and like a, like a ritual system and community and all of that stuff. And so I think... Um, making sure that you understand some of these concepts, what they are and how you, how you use them, which we'll get into next is where you, you'll start to find a new ground. If, if you give up on these mm -hmm. constructs and you, and you give in to what we're saying here, that maybe there's not really a self and an identity is maybe problematic. If you don't know what you're, how you're, how you're thinking about it, um, then, <clears throat> um, you know, there's a way we need to find a new way to find a ground. Like, where do we, where do we land again after this, Steve? Where does the free fall stop? Do we just float, Beautiful. float through the space of, of non-self or, or can we actually come back to, to a, to an understanding of a new understanding of reality and find a new ground? That's beautiful. Beautiful. Well, we'll leave it there because that sums up a lot of what we've been talking about and leads forward to what we'll talk about the next time. Thanks for listening to us, folks. If you're interested in joining in on the conversation, just go to runnosis.com. You can subscribe there. It's free. Um, and you can, um, we'll just put you, in the, put you in the community and give you a chance to talk. So it's not a lot going on there right now, but hopefully there will be. It just takes a couple of us to make it float. And, um, and if not, then that's all cool. You just listen to us here. Um, uh, we appreciate your listening if you've gotten this far. And um, Jason, as again, once again, it's just been, um, I'm going to go deep here. It's soul building, soul making that we're doing right now. And so that essence of connection, I feel with you. And I'm just thankful and grateful for your willingness to be on this journey with me and just to talk shit to people, um, even if I do throw popcorn fart statements in their analogies that, make, that are a little bit strange and unusual. I, I appreciate your patience. <laughs> I feel you, Steve. Thank you. You bet. We'll talk to you guys later. Till next time.